0: Welcome to the Someone Somewhere podcast. It's Saturday, September 2nd, and I'm your host, Nicole. This is episode seven. I've been taking a lot of time in the past couple years to sort of sit back and enjoy my time learning how to garden and exploring a lot more about certain things like mycology or composting, for instance, and kind of taking a back step from getting involved with any community gardens where I am right now I've been focused on my home garden but with that said I really started out not as an individual gardener but as a community gardener and I came to gardening through uh, I guess a, a long history of political radicalization through organizing through being involved in protests, and through being exposed to a lot of history, a lot of New York history, as I lived in New York and was exploring it through that history, um, through the history of reclaimed urban space. And so when I talk about community gardens, I talk about it with a certain passion because I was really deeply involved in it. And so I want to make this podcast tonight to give the general history of the community garden movement in New York and also talk about its radical history. I think with some of the state programs, federal programs, there's been a glossing over of what really started the community garden movement and what attaches the community garden movement to the movement for public space, for free public space, and for the right to organize and mobilize in public space. So, I actually see these things as very interconnected, and I see that history sort of being glossed over, swept under the rug in favor of a more sanitized history of community gardens. So, I really think that there is a connection for the fight for the access to public space and the rights of the public to determine what happens to their space that matters over the rights of moneyed interests or private interests. So I'm going to give a history of the Green Gorillas and Liz Christie and the Lower East Side, the Bowery, the very early community garden movement, and then I'll go into some history about the development of the Green Thumb program and how that movement was quelled by this program. And I really want to talk about the struggle for housing and public space and how in the contemporary how gardens are really pitted against affordable housing movement and how these two movements should be allies to one another we should fight for a right to have green public space available for people, for pets, for children, for wildlife and we should also fight for the right to have housing that is affordable, housing that is safe from toxicity and environmental degradation, a housing that is communal, a housing that respects uh, the neighbors and the neighborhood and the culture. And so I really want to talk about why that's happening and some of the contemporary issues with access to vacant public space. The very first community garden in New York City was started in 1973 by a local resident. Her name was Liz Christie. And she started the Liz Christie Community Garden, located at the intersection of Bowery and Houston Street in Manhattan. Now this is fitting. Of course, uh, things in history seem to work this way, because the word Bowery is actually the Dutch word for farm. And so there's uh, a, quite a long history of farming on the Bowery, so I'm going to give a brief Uh, introduction to that as well. Once a Dutch settlement had been established in Manhattan uh, in the 1600s an agricultural district was built around the Bowery. There was a natural pond there that had a lot of freshwater fish and so people were farming along the Bowery until there was uh, an influx of settlers and there were breweries and slaughterhouses that were polluting the pond and they actually went ahead and the city filled in the pond because of the pollution and from there uh, it became sweatshops and uh, saloons and the neighborhood changed from this agricultural district to uh, a more city nightlife, Uh, tenement houses were being built, Um, whole blocks were going up to support these massive amount of immigrant communities that were just needing housing and needing new places to live. By the late 1800s, the city had built an elevated railroad on both sides of Bowery Street, and that was what was moving all of these people to and from work and it became a much different neighborhood from how it had been 200 years earlier. Um, Much development had been uh, established at this point. And so if you fast forward 100 years after that, you're in the 1970s. So all of these buildings that were built to support these communities 100 years before, by the 70s, they're falling down. Um, Whole blocks are vacant, and there's... Lots of vacant space. Uh, Landlords and property owners have quit maintaining their properties. The city government was going bankrupt. There was a huge financial crisis that was being dealt with uh, during the administration of Abraham Beam. This is when Liz Christie enters the story as she is living in the Bowery and painting and using the city as her muse and uh, she was already making what she was calling seed bombs. Uh, They were basically water balloons that were filled with uh, soil medium and seeds and she would throw them over fences and see if they would start to sprout and grow. And um, one night, Liz Christie saw a young boy playing in garbage at the corner of where she lived, at Bowery in East Houston, and um, this is the same lot where two homeless men had frozen to death in a cardboard box that winter, and now she's uh, watching a young boy climb into a discarded refrigerator in this empty lot, And she was horrified, so she went and intervened and went to the mother of the child and said, you know, why were you letting him play in the trash? And the mother was very insulted by that and said to Liz Christie, if you are so concerned about it, then why don't you remove the refrigerator yourself? And so that is sort of the context for what gave her the idea to go ahead and take over this space and clean it up herself. And uh, you can also think of Liz Christie as coming out of the anti-war movement. In the late 60s and the first Earth Day was organized in New York and happened in 1970 so Liz Christie as a young white woman is also you know at this point I I don't think that there was necessarily racial solidarity there at the beginning but as you'll see through just the act of doing Liz Christie set up the community garden ball to roll and that's really what's important about direct action um, and that's what I like about this story. Liz Christie and her friends went into the vacant space and they hung a banner that said, watch this plot of land be turned into a garden in 24 hours and three months later they had created a Garden out of what had been a trash heap they built 60 raised beds and they gathered horse droppings from the mounted police to use the manure as fertilizer as raised bed medium and they scavenged seeds from parks department giveaways and also from the local black and uh Latina community. They keep a lot of seeds from their home countries. And so uh, there was a seed sharing that happened uh, over time. and within a few months, they were producing uh, you know your your general summer vegetable staples and able to share those uh, within the first year. The green gorillas movement spread quickly. And uh, local activist, Carmen Pabon, a Puerto Rican activist, uh, gardener, poet, uh, wanted to develop an urban sanctuary for children, artists, poets, and the elderly. And uh, Carmen helped thousands of people over the course of her life to live a better life and fed multitudes of uh, Lower East Siders who were experiencing homelessness uh, through the use of the garden that she established. This was called El Jardín de la Esperanza, or the Garden of Hope. And uh, this remained a community garden for over 22 years. So after these Latinas went and cleaned up their community and made their community safer and were growing their food from their country, in their neighborhood, after 20 years of doing all of this, now Giuliani is the mayor. It's the 90s, and a developer named Donald Capoccia, who donated $50,000 to the mayor's campaign, he acquired the garden site from the city without any fair bidding process, and this is something that I'll talk about how this it rings true today. And uh, Giuliani claimed that Capoccio was going to construct affordable housing on the site. And the garden supporters were, quote, not living in the real world, which, you know, very much sounds like something Giuliani would say. And uh, in reality, the 79 apartments that Capoccio slated to build are 80-20 housing, so 80% market rate and 20% token for low-income tenants. Again, same thing today. And uh, basically, a council member uh, had brokered the deal, which gave Capoccia the Esperanza site in exchange for sparing another garden on Avenue C. People mobilized quickly for eviction defense. Hundreds showed up to the garden locked themselves to things, and even hid in the treehouse that had been made on the site in the shape of the coqui frog, which is the symbol of Puerto Rico, and obviously the garden is named the Garden of Hope, so uh, people locked themselves and hopefully tried to stall until an injunction uh, could be inputted in the system. But. Uh, There was no wait by the police. They swarmed the garden, and they brought the bulldozer in, and uh, the people were chanting, protect and serve the garden, protest and serve the people, and they tore down the fence. They uh, sawed off an activist who chained herself to it, and they arrested 25 people who had locked themselves to the garden. In total, 31 were arrested. And it took them only 15 minutes to demolish the 22 years of work that had been put into this garden. And they uh, spent, the people spent 30 hours in jail and holding cells in Manhattan. And General Spitzer had uh, successfully procured a temporary restraining order on the development of all of the gardens except Esperanza, which had already been destroyed and left out of the deal. So Spitzer later remarked that the mayor had subverted the legal process by going ahead to bulldoze the garden as the case had not been able to be heard in court. Spitzer ultimately persuaded an angry judge to put most of these auctions on hold and stop Giuliani from selling off over 600 gardens that had been started since the first community garden in 1973. After these 600 community gardens had been established in just a few years. By the late 70s, the city is now interested in having an organizing platform to control and limit and legislate how much community space will be devoted to gardening. Uh, There was so much community control and community initiative involved in guerrilla gardening and the Green Thumb Program becomes a a city program in 1978. And their mission is supposedly to provide assistance and coordination. And they were originally sponsored by the city department of general services and funded by federal housing and urban development uh, block grants. So Green Thumb today is still a federal fund, uh, largely funded by community block grants for the federal housing and urban development program. So they coordinated the original leases for city-owned vacant land. So instead of community just taking initiative and taking over land and declaring that this is public space, now the city had created an avenue for them to lease city-owned land uh, that is vacant in an interim, what they call an interim lease. So a lease that always has a, an end date and uh, this does not mean that these are permanent gardens. So there is a switch that happened from the early 70s where this burgeoning movement is starting and really picking up speed and people are holding space to the late 70s when the city kind of catches on and says, we need to create a, a state-run avenue to quell this radical movement. And so they put all of their funding and all of their energy into spreading the Green Thumb program. Mayor Ed Koch was extremely interested in expanding the Green Thumb program because he saw it as a gentrification or revitalization project, a cleanup project, uh, and all of these things made him look good. So he found it uh, to his best interest to let community residents clean up this land. And then once the neighborhood got better, You know, these mayors were just going to flip the land to private developers once the neighborhood had changed. So all of this free labor largely done by black and brown women uh, was being used to revitalize neighborhoods, make them safer, and overall make them better places to live in the city. And then the great betrayal of the city going and taking that land and carelessly giving it to private interests so that they could make money off of it. So that is uh, something that is not often revealed about the Green Thumb program or when it got its start and why it's an important moment in history, why it's an important moment in Gorilla Garden history, and how it definitely slowed down the Gorilla Garden movement And got us stuck in this mode of where we're constantly worried about licensing and interim licensing and land being taken from us. And it really puts all of the power back into the hands of the city to determine what happens to public space. And it takes it out of the hands of the community that uh, actually put their hands in contaminated soil and cleaned up Their soil and cleaned up their land so that uh, this program is always considered benevolent when it actually has quite an underbelly to its beginning. I think these squat gardens of the Lower East Side and of the East Village in the 70s and 80s were seen as dangerous to the city and to private interests, and so they worked on developing Green Thumb to create an avenue to quell uh, that and also to give people what they want in the immediate, but to also have now legal grounds to revoke it from them. Whereas when the squat gardens were beginning, the people were setting the terms of, uh, of the space. So I think that we definitely have to assess uh, when Green Thumb is uh, an ally and when they need to be checked, uh, especially for this history. Also, once they create a legal avenue to do something, they also create a criminalization avenue for those who choose not to do that route or those who do choose to break the law to create a garden. Um, It creates more legal grounds for them to demolish it or undermine it. Now, seeing that affordable housing and gardens, which can provide food production, waste management, and air purification, These two things should not be at odds in the first place. And uh, who gives out most of these interim licenses but uh, housing preservation and development? Now, we need to figure out what housing preservation and development is. So you have hundreds of vacant lots in New York City, and many of them are owned by different city agencies. different purposes. So when a parcel of land is owned by the city, it's not just owned by the city of New York, it's owned by a specific agency. Most of the lots are owned by an agency called Housing Preservation and Development. This is the organization that, in the city government that is responsible for building affordable housing and upholding affordable housing laws when they change. So, they have a stock of vacant public land from which they can draw from, and most of these are, at this point, public-private partnerships where the city is selling that land to a private developer with stipulations about the affordable housing uh, versus market-rate housing that will be built, and most of them are luxury condos that have uh, affordable housing units uh, usually a small percentage of affordable housing units. And so by this process, when a group of community organizers or neighbors get together and want to apply for a Green Thumb garden space, it's most likely that the vacant space that they'll be looking at will be owned by Housing Preservation and Development. When they go to apply to uh, create a garden on that space, they may or may not But if they are given a license, it will be an interim license. Maybe it will be for one year or five years. And this means that uh, it will have to be renewed after that time or that the city can sell it off at the end of this period to development. So uh, because housing preservation and development is who owns most of the land and Uh, community gardens are attempting to create at least semi-permanent structures around uh, gardening and composting. There is an inherent... The city has now set up an inherent antagonism between the lots that are available for affordable housing and the lots that are available for community gardening. So this is what creates the tension between community gardeners and people who are stewards of these vacant public spaces and the affordable housing movement, uh, which is being led by the city, but they're obviously not doing a good job. And so people are checking them constantly about that. For instance, building affordable housing when the majority of the housing that they're building is still market rate. I think that that's not worth demolishing a garden that could be uh, creating compost and getting rid of the lead in the, in the community soil uh, that kids would be playing in. I don't think that's a good enough trade-off. But this is the position that gardeners have been put in, and it comes from this, this long history of community gardening and how the state and the city developed these programs to sort of quell our ability to actually go in and create direct action with gardening uh, as a tool for revolution. In 2014, Bill de Blasio put up 17 community garden sites that had interim licenses through Housing Preservation and Development to be sold to developers for just $1 to uh, implement his affordable housing plan. So this is very much something that is alive and well as a strategy for the city and private development to get together and make decisions without community involvement and also to do things in a really shady way and even a coercive way at times. And I have some contemporary examples of this. Some of these tactics include lying about the surveyed land as far as where the delineations of the lots begin and end. Uh, Sometimes coercive developers will have police escort them uh, and their workers to put up fences on these dividing lines to disrupt or partially uh, disrupt the garden, and that creates an antagonism uh, for them to sort of drive a wedge into the rest of the space. Uh, They may lie about owning the deed, To the land, Um, that is something that is definitely, there's definitely been predatory developers claiming land that has been vacant for long periods of time. Uh, They may intimidate or harass community members by claiming that they own the land or that they own these lots where the surveyed line is, and uh, it may run directly through your garden. And uh, they, once they have a control over a piece of the land, they'll do things that could disrupt the space, like building a structure on that space, uh, disrupting the sunlight or conditions, uh, dumping waste. Uh, And this is all a way in which the city and the developers are working together to manage and control urban community agriculture and urban uh, space, whether that's uh, housing space or public space. And uh, these community garden lots, these vacant lots, are really the last of the untouched land that exists, uh, the untouched property in New York, uh, if you think about it. And so they, they, these people think in terms of profit, they don't think in terms of community value and value that is not monetary value. And so they don't see value in community gardens, they don't see value in people's work or preservation of their culture. And so if you have lived in New York City, I don't have to tell you uh, how high the stakes are when it comes to real estate. The city has a vested interest in creating more affordable housing because of the political pressures. And they also have a vested interest in selling off all of this vacant public land uh, when it could be sold to developers and uh, used to make these sort of deals where uh, the developer wins because they don't pay for the land and the city wins because they don't have to hold on to the land anymore and it can also go to some of their housing initiatives. So uh, in this way Green Thumb and Housing Preservation and Development have both worked together to keep community members at arm's length by giving and revoking access to the land as they see fit and to change things often with no warning. Um, They're a very difficult uh, governmental organ to get a hold of. Uh, When I was trying to liberate vacant public space, we were told that all proposals were on hold uh, for almost a year. There was absolutely no movement with uh, the Green Thumb program. So they're really there is much more going on between private developers and the city than there is between community members and Green Thumb or community members and the city. And even with uh, the fierce organizing and history of eviction defense when it comes to community gardens, I'm certain that the future uh, for it is very shaky because they really would rather work with developers And work with city planners, and that's really where the heart of gentrification begins. It begins in these backdoor meetings between city officials and private interests, and it really begins when the public has no access to uh, community planning and having a say in what their community is going to look like. And uh, this also goes along with the uh, city of New York poised to sell uh, liens on community properties and vacant lands. Uh, The city gives up its leverage over properties uh, where taxes have not been paid, and uh, this is one other avenue that allows community property to disappear, so uh, we really need to preserve land that is going up for sale in these tax lien sales, and we need to preserve land that is under pressure for this development in favor of community control. So it's not that the community garden movement is opposed to affordable housing. In fact, you'd find that most of the people involved in community gardening are also involved in anti-gentrification and decolonial movements. So to me, these are the same people that are working for the same ends. It's the city and it's the state apparatus that is pitting us against one another um, in this process, a very violent process, where land is being given and then revoked when what gardeners are here to do is remediate our cities and make them a safe place after years of industry and years of just unchecked, unbridled capitalism vomited all over our cities, making people sick. And uh, gardeners are, are really stewards of public space and uh, they recognize that value that is just shirked off by uh, city officials and by developers and by people who don't see this land as sacred in any way. So uh, we we need to mobilize against the gentrification movement and see how the community garden movement can actually ally with the anti-gentrification movement and how we can work together to fight uh, the illegal sale of land to moneyed interests and also fight for access to clean and green public space. And I think that when you put all of this together, you get uh, a really important radical history uh, related to public space and related to gardens. And uh, I think this is true for every city in America, but New York has a particular history that I find so compelling. And so I hope you learned something about housing preservation and development and the Green Thumb program. I hope you learned something about the community garden movement and the radical history of those who squat on land and take back space and make a beautiful gardens and green space and uh you know take dilapidated places and make them beautiful and share their culture with others and create spaces where people can have time for community in such a fast-paced city, I think that is something worthy of preserving and worthy of sharing. So I hope that this was able to teach you some things and uh, we'll, uh, we'll have to meet back and talk more about this because I just, I love the history of New York Gardens. There's so much more than just this podcast. I mean, shit, I could keep going, but I think this is a good place to stop. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, share it with someone you love. This concludes episode seven of the Someone Somewhere podcast. Good night.